You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is the book reviewer for NPR's All Things Considered. His newest novel is To Catch the Lightning. His newest collection of essays is A Trance After Breakfast. He's also the editor of three textbooks, Literature, Craft, and Voice. Thank you for joining me, Alan. My pleasure, Ruth. Alan, we're talking about this, uh, the last book in the series today, Drama. And as I was looking at this, it struck me how critical a knowledge of drama is to somebody who lives in today's world because we are literally swimming in the the offspring of Sophocles. Oh, absolutely. And and you know one thing my my uh, co-writer, my collaborator, my dear friend, and wonderful critic and novelist Nicholas Delbanco, uh, who wrote the book with me or wh- with whom I wrote the book. Um, points out is exactly that. I mean, he, he's a, a steeped in the hair Shakespearean. Uh, I mean, he'd been born in England. And uh, it, it's, it's amazing just how dramatic the world seems. Beginning, I mean, if you think about it, and, and you know, and this textbook is directed at people in late adolescence, beginning with your first sense of your own life as a, as a, a story, or as I once thought of it, you know, as a kind of movie, uh, you pick a theme song, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you move along with it, uh, defining your own uh, dramas. Uh, it's kind of paradoxical that we have this uh, sort of crap reality TV, so formless. Uh, people who uh, behave as though they're on drugs without being on drugs, just living. What a th- <laughs> blow it! You might as I mean, well. Can, right? How horrible! Right? Um, what a state of being to be in. Um, but you know, because life unfolds in 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 very dramatic ways, forcefully dramatic ways. We, you know, you're you're born into a family which immediately uh, knits you into a number of fated dramas. Uh, and, you know, it's very. It's, it is you're very, already halfway to Oedipus the King. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know the. The curse of the House of Atreus, that's one thing. The curse on the House of Cleffel, that's another. <laughs> and both are profoundly interesting, mm-hmm. if, especially the latter, if you find the right way to, to dramatize those stories. I mean, that's, look what Arthur Miller does with stories of ordinary American uh, middle-class life. It, it's extraordinary. He, he turns Willie Loman in one of the great characters of Western drama because he sees how Willie plays a particular role in the, in the life of that family. And, and yet that's a man who, if you met, you probably would attempt to forget as soon as you met him. Right. But that's, that's why Miller is, you know, the great dramatist of of the democratic tradition, I think, because he shows you... I love you, that idea, the democratic tradition, yeah. yeah. I mean, every, you know, here's here's Willie, here's every man. You know, every man is Willie Loman, and, and, and every woman. One of the things that struck me as I, as I went through this was, you know, one of the challenges teaching drama is that you're teaching it out of a book, but it's made for the stage. Yeah, one thing we do emphasize from the very beginning uh, in our chapters on on Oedipus, 
and all the and, and, and on all the subsequent plays, there are about eighteen of them that we include. Um, we emphasize performance, mm-hmm. and this is something my old teacher um, Francis Ferguson uh, conveyed to me when I was just, you know an uh, eighteen nineteen year old student at Rutgers, which was uh, you perform the play in in the theater of your mind. Um, and what so, an interesting <laughs> take. That's what we do. Yeah. So we perform these plays in the theater of our minds. We produce them. We direct them. We, we do the costuming. We, we uh, you know, rent the sets. <laughs> we, we set the stage, right? We do uh, everything as we mount these plays in our mind as we read them. And, and um, so we do f- try to focus the student's mind on this aspect of it. You know, everybody's seen enough movies to uh, to know how to visualize dramatic action in front of them. Uh, you know, and people have seen a certain number of plays, probably. You know, mm-hmm. whether kids, uh, you know, or or see children's plays in in, in elementary school, or whether you see uh, you know re- religious drama at, at at particularly at Christmas, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or uh, go to an actual stage play in the theater. Or simply watch movies uh, on the screen or or on the monitor at home. I mean, everybody knows the difference between uh, art and our ordinary kind of dull lives as we see them. Uh, but what we hope to do is to get people to produce these plays in their in their minds, and also to reflect on the ways in which their lives partake of the same dramatic qualities, so that. It, it not only enhances their idea of a theater, which is which was the title of my my old professor Ferguson's great book on on modern drama, the idea of a theater. So it not only enhances their idea of a theater, but it enhances their idea and their sense of their own lives. And so we try to show them the role that literature can play in in the uh, the life that you live. Could you talk about um, the opening sections of this book, where you where you um, talk about uh, trying to instruct the the students on just how to to read a play, because it's it's not something that might necessarily lend itself to reading in the way that fiction or poetry does. Yeah, uh, we do. We take them through. Um a reading of a of a play that came out of the Provincetown Playhouse uh, theater group in in uh, in the uh, early 1920s, or just basically post immediately post World War One, a play by Susan Glaspell, who was part of that whole Provincetown uh, Playhouse crew with Eugene O'Neill and uh, John Reed. Um, so we we kind of walk walk them through this short play and ask them to write about it in a kind of elementary way. And then we have them um, take a closer look at how drama works, and, and we give them a, a comical play, uh, basically a, a, a ferocious satire on modern love called The Wedding Story by a contemporary playwright named uh, Julian Homoke. And then we take them to Zoo Story, uh, a classic that that a lot of them probably have seen. I mean, I well, I don't know. I I think you know we can't assume that mm-hmm. we can't assume that, um, but it's a 
you know, ferocious play, and it forces them to, you know, it's just two guys sitting on a bench in, in a large park in Central Park in New York, and it turns, uh, turns murderous. Uh, so it, it, the set is large, but the, the, uh, the camera lens is closed or close. You know, we just watch these two guys go back and forth with and finally at each other in this uh, strange uh, everyday drama that occurs in, you know, out in the park. Uh, and, and so... It's th the power of language, too. The I mean. language, yes. And, and that's the other thing we try to, to uh, demonstrate for them is that just as poetry is a language apart from ordinary speech, yet still has elements of ordinary speech in it with that, so that you can not only understand it but apply it to your own life, that drama has its own way of speaking about the world and to an audience. That's well, that's a fascinating observation, because um, we like to think of all the forms of literature that we like that we read, fiction and even poetry, as we tend to when we experience them, we tend to strip out the, that formalization and see them as somewhat reflections uh, of the things around us. It's just just a couple of guys sitting around. Just a couple of guys sitting talking around talking about talking about life. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, that's one thing the the, the drama volume uh, forces you to come to terms with is that you know the earliest uh, literature we have comes out of this uh, tremendously formal and basically quasi religious tradition of the classical Greeks, um, and. Uh, Although obviously we don't read the play in Greek, we we get a sense of the high formality of the language when kings speak, you know, and, and you, that continues on through the reading of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Kings and queens speak differently than grave diggers, and uh, you know, people begin to understand that uh, language was a a had a, a a role in the way in which life pe people regulated life. A so class I, system for language as well as the people who speak it. Absolutely. And, you know, the way you spoke defined uh, who, who, who you were. And it still does. To a certain extent it does, <laughs> although when you get to um, modern drama, you begin to see that it's, it gets a lot trickier. Um, when you read uh, Death of a Salesman, the, you mm -hmm. know, the great Miller play, you begin to recognize that ordinary domestic speech can soar to as close to heaven as some of the highly elevated, ornamental, uh, avowedly sublime speech of Oedipus the King. Mm -hmm. So we all still have that possibility. That's what I mean about the great play of the d democratic, uh, of democratic culture, in that it makes us see that everyone has that tragic element to them. That depth of character and strength mm -hmm. of character. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think you do well with this book is in terms of taking advantage of your format is in the section on uh, Oedipus and Sophocles, you have pictures of what of the places where they spoke. And I think that's really informative to gives gives us a picture of yeah. exactly, you know, how people got together to, to tell these stories. Yes, when you see a four color uh, photograph of a very large uh, Greek uh, amphitheater. Mm -hmm. where the Oedipus plays uh, were performed four times a year uh, at the Festival of Dionysus, uh, performances to which all citizens were uh, 
supposed to attend. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, you know, or else they they couldn't vote. So you know, they this was part of their civic duty mm-hmm. was to attend theater. Um, Boy, that's a that's an interesting notion that could use some resurrection. Yeah, I mean, I you know, part of me wants to think, well, can we change the Constitution to amend it such that everybody has to read at least five novels a year? Or yeah, I, I think twenty you, short stories a year. Yeah. <laughs> but co- talking actually talking about short stories and novels uh, and poetry, you you can see that especially with no- novels with fiction, you know, the tradition only goes back about a hundred. 150 years at most mm-hmm. the the tradition of the play to the of a performance by actors whom uh, in some uh, eras particularly in, in the classical Greek era were seen to be divinely uh, inspired mm-hmm. uh, speaking through masks uh, that um, made it clear that the actors were not themselves, but were figures elevated uh, to speak uh, about the universe and moved to speak by forces in the universe. Um, this tradition goes back thousands of years. Platonic ideals. They were representing. Well, even yes, uh, but they begin. They join heaven and earth, whereas I think, you know. Plato, I'm, I'm not much of a big Platonist. You know, I'm, I, I see myself <laughs> as more of an Aristotelian. If in life you're forced to choose, uh, I go with Aristotle, uh, who makes it clear that drama begins in the soul of our species. You know, the, and uh, so he takes life on Earth very, very seriously. Plato, eat your heart out, you Platonist, I'm sorry. Plato does not take life as seriously as Aristotle. <laughs> but Aristotle was a biologist as well mm-hmm. as a literary critic and political scientist, so he knows the stuff of life. Right. You know, it, it struck me as I was uh, reading this too that, you know, ants and termites, they make impressive structures, they, but they don't make poetry or drama, do they? And, and that's the, I think that's one of the defining aspects for me of civilization is is that creative urge. Yeah, that's a line of criticism, you know, that a lot, a lot of people have taken very seriously. Uh, beginning in the in the early uh, 20th century, in the 1920s, uh, Suzanne Langer, who was a philosopher at Columbia at the time, uh, worked in a, in a book called Ma, uh, Feeling, an essay on form. Four volumes uh, takes up the question of animal display as whether and whether animal display is art and Kenneth Burke uh, takes up that question again also and and really defines it by saying man is the symbol making animal we are the only animal that makes symbolic uh, constructions whether in language or in out of stone or using light and paint Uh, and that's separates us from the other animals so uh, I mean, one of the things I would think a, a, a young student might want to notice is what particular kind of animal he or she is. And, <laughs> and, and if you look at the literary tradition, uh, you know, he or she is a symbol-making animal. One of the things I thought was pretty amazing was the interviews that you have to go with this. I mean, Edward Albee 
Arthur Miller. I mean, that's just kind of mind-boggling to think that you guys got those interviews and nailed them down for this for this textbook, and that nobody has done that before because that's really that's getting to the heart of the matter. Well, you know, we produced uh, three dozen uh, video interviews, uh, almost all of them specifically for this. Uh, this three-volume textbook. Uh, you know, in, in, in full disclosure, the Albee and the Miller were the only ones we, we didn't produce on our own. The Albee is a New York Times uh, conversations interview from that conversation series with the Times. And uh, Miller comes from the, uh, an interview at the University of Michigan where Nick Del Banco teaches, so we got permission to use that. But, uh, you know, the interviews, uh, Arthur Cope at the Experimental play, Playwright and... Uh, um, you know, the, the great classicist at Harvard, uh, hold it a minute, Gregory Nagy, yeah. the great, and in the interview with the great Harvard classicist, Gregory Nagy, all of them, uh, Ralph Williams is Shakespearean from, from, uh, Michigan and, uh, Marion Seldes, one of the great stage actors of our time, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Ruben Santiago Hudson, who's a wonderful playwright and actor. I think you've seen him on playing detectives on about 50 or 60 TV shows. Uh, he, he, he talks about uh, August Wilson, who was his mentor. Um, you know, they speak about the plays that we have included in, in, the, in the volume. In fact, uh, Gregory Nagy talks for about an hour on a day in the life of a production of the Oedipus play and makes you see that uh, Sophocles was the hero of his time. He was kind of like the, 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 the Mick Jagger, uh, Arthur Miller um, uh, combination. I mean, you know, he not only wrote his Stephen play. Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, Stephen King should aspire that high. Uh, you know, Soph- he points up and describes very vividly, you know, that Sophocles not only wrote the plays, he directed them, he produced them, he wrote the music for the plays. Um, he, you know, and he... Does uh, the music survive? No, the music has not survived. But, uh, you know, he was the person without whom these plays could not go on. And, uh, as I said, there is a deep and direct involvement with the citizenry of Athens. that They had to attend the plays. Mm-hmm. And, in fact... Uh, Sophocles drafted ordinary people, well, or extraordinary ordinary people, and this is Athens, um, <laughs> off the street to participate in the chorus. They played in the chorus. Mm-hmm. So um, you had or, you know, ordinary people and trained actors uh, whom uh, Sophocles trained to dance and chant and sing in the chorus. So this was a fully democratic uh, production, and, and Naj really makes that come, that production element come alive when he talks about uh, the the making of, of the Oedipus play in one of these video interviews. So uh, we, we see the video interviews as really engaging and, and ancillary, yes, but uh, necessary in their own way. I'd say a great way to, to get a handle on, the, I guess, the reality of this, to get an attachment beyond the text. Yes, that's something, that's reach a, one hand beyond mm-hmm. the text. That's a good point. Uh, I mean, because as I said earlier, we want to get people to produce these things in their mind. Uh, they're not just scripts on the page. If you look at them, 
in, in, an, in an imaginative way, and you use everything you know about what you've seen, you know, kids' plays, um, you know, movies you've seen, maybe you've seen a stage play, uh, maybe you've gone to the Ice Capades or the circus, mm-hmm. uh, all great productions. And Interesting you, idea. Yeah, I never thought the circus is a play, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So you put all of this everything that you know into your reading of these plays and, and produce it, as, as I said, my old teacher Ferguson talked about it, in, on, on the, the stage in your mind. Um, and you can do it. And, and uh, we used a lot of still four-color shots from various productions. Um, and movies. And I think that's a good movies, way to, right? to, to bring, again, bring somebody who's 17, 18 years mm-hmm. old into this. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you show them a picture of Kevin Klein, that's that's a name that they're going to be able to understand and mm-hmm. place in context. And I think that's, I, that's interesting. Now, I have to say that when you're putting together the fiction volume mm-hmm. and the poetry volume, mm-hmm. you have like, what, 500 pages. And that allows you... Uh, maybe 600 600 yeah. yeah that allows you to put in a significant you know variety of stuff mm-hmm. um here in the same amount of time you can the same space you really had to to select and make your choices yes i think so could you talk about um winnowing this down this sounds like a a, a real like you and nick may have had some real smackdowns over this actually no oh really uh, you know, we you know we went back and forth with our editors about how much we could include, mm-hmm. but I think we. Um, I mean, it's hard to say less is more, uh, as a principle, when you know we've got over five hundred, six hundred pages of scripts. Uh, you know, we we went back and forth about which of the of the Shakespeare plays we would include. Right, right. Uh, so we've got a tragedy and a comedy. Um, but no, we the 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 real problem was uh, indulging ourselves. <laughs> how much we wanted to include, and and the the how much paper we could expend in relation to that indulgence. Um, so so we've got a major a major uh, collection of Western drama here. Mm-hmm. What really helped us. Um, was for the contemporary plays was that there's so many wonderful one act uh, plays out of contemporary theater. So we include five of those, mm-hmm. um, and so that kind of reduced the size of the contemporary section. But we also included uh, a lot of still shots from Ruben Santiago Hudson's uh, memoir play turned into a movie, Lackawanna Blues, right? Uh, which I hope a lot of people will rent after uh, reading this. Uh, his comments on the page about this, mm-hmm. um, so, so it kind of points them towards towards the movies, and um, actually in in our um, in our poetry volume we've got a sequence on the Beowulf story, which takes it from the old English poem through various incarnations of Beowulf in in uh, some novels, contemporary novels like Michael Crichton's, and all the way through some some of the movies on Beowulf. So uh, we we are well aware that our uh, audience here ha- is much more conversant with uh, movies and and television and in some cases graphic uh, fiction than the great tradition. Uh, but why wouldn't they be? They're American students. Uh, sure. They've got the energy. They just haven't had their energy directed to to where uh, they need to go. And that's what college is all about. 
except for, for people who go to the finest prep schools, education really begins at college for mm-hmm. most, uh, most Americans. I grew up in Jersey. That's where it began. You know, college is where it began for me. Um, and uh, so we're aware of the kind of audience we're, we're working with and speaking to. At the same time, we're saying, hey, hello, folks, young man, young woman, this is the great tradition. Sit down, shake hands with it, start imagining it in your minds. This is where everything you've seen for the last 20 years of your life originated. This is the inception point of all that stuff. I mean, Sophocles, the Oedipus, mm-hmm. the king, that's mm-hmm. from thence, you go it's pretty much straight line from there to the Roadrunner cartoons. <laughs> Looking down after you've run off the cliff and seeing you are in midair yes. produces a fall. Yes. You're right. That's it is a kind of road roadrunner in that sense is a kind of spin off of the Oedipus play. <laughs> you've heard it here first. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. <laughs> this is the first time we've got uh, Sophocles and Roadrunner. Roadrunner. I defy anyone to say that these two <laughs> figures have been matched together in any kind of critical analysis before this, right? <laughs> Um, now, is that uh, what they call deconstruction? <laughs> I think it's called reconstruction. <laughs> reconstruction, yeah. We're building it back up again. Uh, I think it's interesting, you know, to to get a look at some of the contemporary and experimental theater because mm-hmm. uh, that's there's some fascinating stuff in there. That's not exactly, I think, what a lot of uh, your students are going to uh, associate with plays. I mean, we think of plays. I think when you come into college and you think of plays, you might think of Shakespeare, because mm-hmm. it's been dropped on your head several hundred times, whether you want it to or not. Mm-hmm. And then when you um, pick up this textbook and you see David Wang, I mean, you're just going, well, wow, that's just not what I expected, or Joan Ackerman. Right, or uh, um, David Ives, mm-hmm. Moby Dude. Moby his, Dude. His three-and-a-half-minute version of Moby Dick. Yes. Uh, you can't beat that if you want to turn the monumental into something manageable yes well that's uh, but that's what all playwriting is about isn't it condensing yeah that's what drama is something life compact into a single line of action that shows us something about the world we didn't know before yeah yeah but thinking about Moby Dude um, you know what we're interested in in doing here with and for the student is helping them to be become critical thinkers, critical readers, but at the same time to recognize that just as there is, you know, fast reading, there is slow reading. There's fast food, slow food, as it's called. Uh, There's a guy named, uh, I think it's Peter Davis in the, in uh, the Santa Cruz Metro, uh, just did an article uh, this summer on, on, on what he called the return of slow reading. And I love that term. I mean, I was, I hadn't been wondering when somebody was going to apply it to reading, take it from the culinary world, but it makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. In, 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 in a world in which you know we've got 743 distractions every second, mm-hmm. email and, can I say the T word, Twitter? <laughs> yes. And uh, bird chirp, right? bird talk. And uh, you know, various kinds of telephones and television screens and monitors and not to mention the 12 forms of uh, 
video games. Video games. Portable. I mean, in case yeah. you're standing in a bank and in case you're, you cannot occupy yourself for 35 seconds, you can uh, turn on your phone and look at some kind of video of something. Yeah. And so you recognize that um, something uh, a writer friend of mine named Laura Furman said oh, maybe 20 years ago, that re reading in America is the last form of real solitude mm -hmm. that you have when you're conscious. Um, and so this notion of slow reading, I think, is extremely important. It's not an act of mind that we want to forget mm -hmm. because if you just jump from second to second, you're not going to notice a narrative arc, whereas what so-called slow reading does for you is not only helps you to become a, a good thinker and a good writer, but it helps you to become more fully alive than you are at, before you've done it. When it to immerse yourself more fully in the reading experience, which is uh, the the most perfect uh, hallucinatory experience that you can possibly experience. Yes, it's f free drugs. <laughs> free drugs <laughs> with no lasting side effects, except exactly. perhaps increased intelligence and uh, ability to engage in the community and your, with your fellows. It says so on our package. <laughs> I've been speaking with Alan Chews with Nicholas Del Banco. He's the editor of Literature, Craft, and Voice, three volumes of college textbooks, fiction, poetry, and drama. We've been talking about drama. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.